There's a story in our family that has become legendary, although I will tell you at the outset, it does not paint me in a favorable light. I was a freshman in college, 1984, coming home for Christmas break, my first extended time home. There's only two of us uh, as kids in the family. There is me, and then there's my sister, who's nine, almost ten years younger than I am. And my mother, in our phone conversations building up to my coming home for Christmas, would remind me that my sister was completely at my mercy to take her Christmas shopping and that uh, she wanted me to do that first thing when I got home. I said, do not worry, I'm a responsible adult. I know everything. I'm a freshman in college. And so I did get home, and you know, hey, there were, there were people to see, and there were things to do. There were naps to take, and I kept telling my sister, who was growing more panicked by the moment, we'll get a handle, do not worry. So the morning of Christmas Eve, uh, my sister in a frenzy... I say, we will take you to, to get mom's Christmas present from us. Now, my mom wanted, uh, for reasons I still don't understand, wanted these little ceramic ducks that would set in the floor and just be there. I mean, they, don't, they didn't do anything. They were just ceramic ducks. And there was one store in our hometown, Tahlequah, Oklahoma, that, that had them. And so we went to that store the morning of Christmas Eve, and for reasons I don't fully understand, they were sold out. There was a run on ceramic ducks in Tahlequah, Oklahoma at Christmas 1984. There was one other store in town that I thought might have that we went to it. They did not have it. My sister's beside herself and angry at me. And I told her, don't worry, I can totally fix it. And so we went to what was the equivalent of a dollar store in our hometown and we bought her a Vince Gill cassette and a spice rack. <laughs> um, that didn't work in my sister's mind as an adequate substitute. And it sure didn't work as an adequate substitute in my mom's mind. And she was fit to be tied. She was good and mad. And that's why this is legendary. Because I can still get her hot. And we're pushing 40 years later. I can still get her hot reminding her of this story. Now, what made my mom upset was not that she didn't get something. What made my mom upset was her background. My mom grew up extraordinarily poor. And so when she became an adult and had the means to be able to buy for her family those things that they wanted, she would go over and above to make sure that we got them. And from her perspective, I hadn't forgotten about her because, you know, I had a sister constantly harping. It's just that I hadn't prioritized her as I should have. And, and that, that hurt her. Now, there is uh, something that happens in the events surrounding Christmas that we know about. More specifically, there is a person that we know exist in the Christmas event, but we don't prioritize like we should. Let me ask you a, a bit of Christmas trivia. If I were to say to you, in all of the scriptures that we have surrounding the birth of Christ in the New Testament, who gets more press, who gets more ink than anybody else, who would you say? A lot of people would say, well, Mary, obviously, or, or maybe you'd say Joseph, and there's surprisingly little in Scripture. In fact, we have no recorded words of Joseph 
in Scripture, or we might say, well, Jesus does. But none of those would be correct. The person who gets the most ink in all of the New Testament is a man named Zechariah. Luke focuses on him more than he focuses on Mary, more than he even focuses on the birth of Christ. So he is someone that we haven't forgotten really, but whose words we don't prioritize very much. We tend to want to try to run through them so that we can get to in those days when Quirinius was governor of Syria and all of that. That's where we want to get. But let's not run past Zechariah because Luke doesn't run past Zechariah. And through him this morning, here's what I want us to do. Our our, our theme is, no, I had seen. We're looking at the mystery. We're beholding things in the Christmas event that we might not otherwise see. I want us to behold this morning some unforeseen aspects, things never anticipated by anyone and maybe overlooked by us about our redemption. So I hope you have Luke chapter 1, verse 57. Let's begin our journey through the text this morning. Verse 57 says, Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. Now this ties back into the event that opens Luke's account of the life of Christ, where we are told the priest Zechariah was given a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to enter into the temple and to offer prayers on behalf of the people by way of a regular kind of daily sacrifice. Um, he was a man who had been married faithfully to his wife Elizabeth for decades, but we're told that they have no children. They have longed for them, they have prayed for them, but they have been childless for literally decades of their marriage. And in this uh, opportunity to offer prayers on behalf of the people, the angel Gabriel appears to Zechariah and says to them that they will have a child, that this child will be called John, and he will prepare the people of Israel for their coming Messiah. And Zechariah, the priest, a holy man, responds to this news with a, you got to be kidding me, that's not going to happen. And so as, as a means of kind of rebuking his lack of faith, and to also offer him a sign that what the angel had said was indeed true, Zechariah is rendered mute for the foreseeable future. We don't know if that'll ever rectify itself. And then uh, the story, Luke's narrative gaze moves from uh, Zechariah and Elizabeth to Mary. We're coming back to Elizabeth and we see that what the angel had promised has come true, that the child has been born. Verse 58 says, and her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her. Again, decades of childlessness. She has a child, and they rejoiced with her as family and friends obviously would do. And then it says, on the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child according to Jewish custom, and they would have called him Zechariah after his father. Now, that doesn't always happen. Not everybody in the New Testament or in the Old Testament is named after their father, but with him being unable to communicate clearly with anybody, uh, they just assumed this would be a, a good name to name the child. But as they were attempting to do this, his mother intervenes and says, no, he shall be called John, which we see now that uh, Zechariah has been able to communicate some of the events that took place at the temple with Elizabeth. They know that he is to be John. 
John. This will later become John the Baptist. And they say to her, bearing in mind women have no standing in the first century, the equivalent of, look, lady, seriously. They, say, they said to him, none of your relatives is called by this name. I mean, and we get you might not name him Zachariah, but there's nobody in your family named John, they say to her. And they made signs, it says, to his father inquiring what he wanted him to be called. We're given insight there that I think is important to note. We're told that the angel Gabriel rendered him mute for his cynicism and his lack of faith. Now, for us, being mute simply means unable to speak. If that's the case, why are they having to make signs to him in order to communicate to them what will we name this child? From what we can tell from the usage of the language at this time, to be mute didn't mean simply to be unable to speak. It also meant unable to hear. He was unable to hear, thus they had to make signs to him to try to get his wishes, and he was unable to speak. So for his cynicism and his lack of faith, he had been cut off from everyone around him in a personal way to be able to to communicate. So he asked for a writing tablet. Now I want you to think in your mind what this might look like. A very crude first century whiteboard or chalkboard. It's a piece of, piece of wood with a, a, a wax covering that could be smeared out and cleaned and, and, done and written on again. So they hand him a writing tablet as uh, he asked for and he wrote for them his name is, not shall be, not will be, but his name is definitively John. And they all wondered. Well, what do they wonder about? Well, on a very human, natural level, why would they name this kid John? They have no idea why he would name him John. Again, doesn't fit the family. They all wondered, but they didn't have to wonder long because Luke tells us, and immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue was loosed. That which had been taken from him was restored, and he spoke blessing to God. So he begins to praise God for this blessing of a child. Not that he could speak again, but he's blessing God that this child has been given him, and he's been given an opportunity to fulfill what the angel instructed him in naming the child John. And it says, and fear came on all their neighbors. They weren't terrified of what they have seen, but they understand suddenly this man is able to speak. He is giving praise to God. Something wondrous is happening here. And so that fear is an awe. They are in awe. They know that God is present, that God is doing something wonderful. And it was so amazing for those that were there that Luke tells us these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. They, they who, who witnessed it happen told everybody they saw what they witnessed. And all who heard the words and the account of events as they took place, it says, laid them in their hearts saying, what shall this child be? I mean, with that wonderful thing happening, what does God have in store for this child? Now, that's pretty amazing. I mean, people never forgot it. They talked about it far and wide. What did they hear? Well, Luke tells us what they heard. He records for us the words of Zechariah when his mouth was loosed. Verse 67, his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit, and prophesied, which is significant, because we're in a period of time where there had been no prophet in Israel for 400 years. Not all the time can you um, look at your 
scriptures and, and know that this came before that. But Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament, is the last prophet of Israel for 400 years. There had not been revelation from God for 400 years. So when we hear that the, uh, the, the man Zechariah is prophesying, we know that that 400 years of silence from God is being lifted. He is speaking for God. And he says this, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days now because we just blow through scripture sometimes when we read it and again, because we're so anxious to get to Luke chapter 2, verse 1, we don't pay attention to these words. But I want you, those of you who are parents, grandparents, I want you to look back on those words, just scan them for a moment, and tell me what you find unusual about them. Think about it. Look at it. See what you find unusual. Bear in mind, childless for decades of marriage. And the first time he gets an opportunity to speak and to bless God for what has happened, there is no mention of the child. He's not talking about his son. I mean, it's been a while now, but hey, I remember when Caleb was born. I couldn't wait for everybody to know. I took pictures, and then I went to the drugstore, and I had the film, you remember that, developed. Then I waited for like a week, and I got those back, and then everywhere I went, I was just showing people pictures. Same thing happened when Abby was born. I wanted everybody to know. When my grandkids were born, I just pointed my phone at them, which would have sounded ridiculous in 1993 when my kid was born. I pointed my phone at them. I took a picture and broadcast it to the world. I wanted people to know that I was a father, that I was a grandfather. I wanted people to know. And Zachariah, not able to speak for months, doesn't talk at all about his son, but instead talks about the salvation that is coming to his people. The, the final promise of God of the Old Testament for his people Israel, that he would send to them the king who would throw off their oppressors, was coming. And this was a time of extraordinary bleakness for the people of Israel. Again, keep in mind, God had not spoken for 400 years. He's gone silent. Will he ever speak again? They were under the thumb of the growing domination of the Roman Empire. Herod was their uh, kind of pawn in the region to enforce his rule, and he was brutal. It never looked like uh, the, it, things had been any bleaker for the people of Israel than they were at that very moment. And Zechariah can't help but speak of what God was doing to bring salvation. And then, then he gets around to talking about his son. Verse 76, he says, and you, child, and can't you just see it? 
I mean, holding John the Baptist in his arms, looking in his face, and you, son, will be called the prophet of the Most High. This is what you'll do. You will go before the Lord, this coming Messiah, to prepare his ways, to to prepare people for his rule. And how will he do this? He will herald. He will preach. He will give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins, which would have landed weird in their ears because the default understanding of a Jewish person is that I'm right with God because I'm a Jew. I'm right with God because... I was born in the right ethnic group of people, and I enhanced the quality of that salvation that I have from God on the basis of my ethnicity through practicing the rules and rituals. So I, I, I sin, and I, I'm forgiven of my sin through the sacrifices, but I'm saved on the basis, basis of my ethnicity. But what he says here is that you are going to give people that a knowledge of their salvation is... is uh, uh, happening in their life by means of their forgiveness. The, the forgiveness of sins is the basis of the salvation that they are experiencing. And he says that this will come in these beautiful words because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. Isn't that beautiful? And we are told then that the child grew and became strong in spirit. And he was in the wilderness until the days of his public appearance to Israel. So we've lingered on these words that we tend to run past to get to the good stuff of Luke chapter 2. And I said at the beginning that if we'll spend some time with these words, they will help us behold something unseen about the redemption that many of us in this room would claim. I'm going to guess that most of us would say, I have experienced redemption. I am saved. I am born again. I have received Jesus as my Savior. And you might think because you've experienced it that you know everything there is to know about it and have thought every thought there is about it. And that may be true, but, but we're going to kind of lift the veil on some things that maybe we have grown too accustomed to through the words of Zechariah this morning. Two things I want to point out. First of all, these words help us behold the unseen preparation for redemption. You know, Mary's song, hymn, that we looked at last week leaned heavily into uh, the Old Testament scriptures, which she knew by heart. And so, that, that kindling of God's word in her heart was lit by Elizabeth saying to her, the baby in my womb leaped when, when he heard your voice. And so she was able to erupt out of that Old Testament framework with praise to God. Zechariah is doing a similar kind of thing, but the things that he leans into are more how God is fulfilling in our time the promises and the prophecies of the Old Testament. In fact, he leans into, in the end of that first section, words that are very much like the words that Moses spoke to Pharaoh when the people of of Israel were delivered from slavery and went into the wilderness, wilderness to become the people of God. What he is giving voice to is that there has been a plan that is ancient, 
that has come to pass in our time to bring us our salvation. And that is true in ways that may not have occurred to us. In Genesis chapter 3, the man and woman, Adam and Eve, choose their way over God's way. They rebel and they sin. And immediately in that moment, there is a hint from God that the chaos that was being unleashed by their sin on the world was going to be dealt with by God. He says that a a, a man, a, a son would come from the woman who would crush the heel of the serpent who deceived. Right in the moment of mankind's choosing their way over God, God is saying, I've got a plan to redeem mankind. And that plan begins to blossom out and we see all of humanity and all of the chaos and everything that is wrong and we pass through the life of Noah and a destruction of the world by, by water and then uh, the chaos continues. Mankind has not learned their lesson and so it's really bleak and bad but then it zeroes in on a man named Abraham. And God calls this man Abraham to follow him. And so we begin to follow specifically this man named Abraham. And it begins to broaden out into the people of Israel. And we begin to follow the people of Israel. And because we know what God promised in Genesis chapter 3, we're catching on to the idea that the solution is going to come through Abraham and it's going to come through the people of Israel. But it's still broad and Israel's a train wreck. I mean an absolute train wreck. And they are constantly overrun. And by the time we get to the first century they're just really put upon and oppressed more than they ever have been but then it begins to narrow and it lands on a family again a family of Abraham that consists of two cousins named Elizabeth and Mary and so we say okay something's happening here and then it narrows even closer on Zachariah and Elizabeth and then obviously it narrows in on Joseph and Mary and then there is a pinprick what C.S. Lewis called the point of a spear which is Jesus it's not something that God dreamed up in the white space between Malachi and Matthew it goes all the way back to Genesis 3 in fact Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 1 that it goes all the way back before there was an atom in the universe that before the very foundations of the world God had set in motion his plan for redemption. What brought you here today to the feet of Jesus is an ancient, even eternal plan. But there's more to it than just that. Just an appreciation of the eternal plan of God to bring you to the cross and the feet of Jesus. There's also through the words of Zechariah, the ability to behold the unseen scope of redemption. How it was applied. I mean, you go back and you read those words of Zechariah, he's pretty clearly just thinking of Israel. That's how he was wired to think. He thought of the work of the Messiah. He thought of the, the work of this king that would come as being a work that was strictly focused on the people of Israel and nothing else. The people of Israel thought that they would be the only beneficiaries of this king that God would send. But he says something towards the end of our passage 
that has a broader implication than probably he was even aware of. Frequently you see this when you're reading the prophecies of the Old Testament, particularly as they relate to the work of Christ and the church, where a prophet will say something, and there's kind of an immediate application of it, but there is a broader aspect to that fulfillment which is to come that they are not aware of. So bearing in mind, Zechariah locked in on what God might do to Israel, speaking probably with only Israel in his mind, says in verse 78 that this salvation will come because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. The sun has risen on Israel, but let me ask you a question. Upon whom does the sun rise? Everyone. The sun rises on everyone. Taking the metaphor of darkness, who is living in darkness? Not just the oppressed people of Israel, but all of humanity is living in darkness. And the sun will rise. In Zechariah's understanding, the sun is rising in the sending of John the Baptist, who is heralding or making a way for the Messiah. The sun is rising, but it's not just on Israel, it's on everyone. See, the people of Israel had lost sight of the fact that when Abraham was called by God, To follow him, he was told that he would make him a great nation and all the nations of the world would be blessed through him. And then later on in Genesis 17, when he reiterates his promise to Abraham, he adds to it and he says, you will be the father of many nations. The entire world is is essentially going to flow from you. And we learn, as we will next month in Romans chapter 4, that what, what God had in mind is that Abraham, through his faith, would make a way, a pathway for faith for all people to come to faith in Jesus Christ and have the one true God as their God. The sun is rising on everyone. The Messiah's work 2,000 years ago, planned for before time began, is with you in 2021 in suburban Kansas City in mind. Now, we're very utilitarian with God's word. And we're thinking, okay, I've learned something about these words. How's that going to make a difference for me at 8 o'clock tomorrow morning? How do I apply it? We're very utilitarian, pragmatic, functional with God's Word. But one thing we miss sometimes is that the most appropriate application for something we learn in God's Word is not to do something with it except to worship. And what I hope has happened this morning, if you know Jesus as your Savior is that you have recognized that, that, that this is an ancient thing that has brought you to Jesus. This was not accidental, this was not plan B, but this is an ancient plan of God that brought you to Jesus. And you were one of the masses of humanity who was living in darkness. Never forget that. I don't care how moral you are and how upright you are, without Jesus you're living in darkness in the sun by the grace and the tender mercies of God is shining on your life that is bringing you salvation. The only thing you can do with that is to let that hit you like a truck and worship God for what he has done for you. 
But there, there are some who come to services like these and are quietly saying, but you don't know. You don't know what I've done. No one knows what I've done. My spouse does not know what, I am, what I've done or, or what I'm doing. My parents don't know what I've done or what I'm doing. And the sun can't shine on me. Let me make sure we all understand that the dominant metaphor for our condition apart from Christ is that we are dead. We are dead. So you've got part of it right. You don't deserve the sun to shine on you. None of us deserve the sun to shine on us. But God in his tender mercies is bringing the light of Jesus even into your darkness and your life. And there's nothing better that you could do today if you're in that darkness, alone and hiding, than to come into the light that Jesus is providing.